Welcome to the Midcast, presented by the Mission Initiative Group of the Baptist Union of Scotland. Each month we will look at some of the key issues for mission in Scotland today. We'll bring you experienced voices, practical insights and unique stories, all focused on the mission of the church in Scotland. Welcome to the Midcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to download this episode. My name is Glenn Innes. I'm a pastor in Edinburgh and I chair the Mission Initiative Group of the Baptist Union of Scotland. The Midcast exists to tell stories of mission and church innovation around Scotland and to think on matters of missional significance for us as we try to reach out to our communities. Today, we have with us a pastor who's going to help us begin to think about some of the issues around race and racial injustice and racial reconciliation in our land. I want to say a few things before we get into the podcast. The first is, it's long. Uh, I We thought about splitting it up, but uh, I think it's worth the whole conversation. It's about an hour, so uh, maybe just something for your lunchtime. Uh, the other things are a couple of assumptions I want us to make. First of all, if you're just dropping into this podcast, this is a Christian podcast. We are assuming that we are Christians as we speak on these matters, and we're looking to take a Christian worldview. The other assumptions that I am making is that, first of all, the majority of my listeners are white, and so I'm going to refer to you that way. I realize that won't be universally true. Please don't be offended, but I think that is uh, most of the people who are listening will be white. And are also not super well thought through on this issue, and that we are coming to this fairly new. The other is that most of us would not consider ourselves racist. The final assumption I want to make is that many of us fear speaking in this space for fear of offending or using the wrong language, that kind of thing, and so we're pretty nervous about it. With those assumptions in place, I think it's really important that as Christians we engage this conversation boldly and with humility and I'm delighted that I was able to spend an hour with Darnell beginning to think about these issues. I hope this is helpful. My guest today is Darnell Starks. Darnell, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Thank you, Glenn. I'm honored to be here. Darnell, my suspicion is most people uh, listening don't know you, so I wonder if we could just spend a couple of minutes getting to know you. Who is Darnell (coughs) Starks? What's your background? Where, where are you from? Well, Glenn, I was born and raised in Chicago and uh, lived most of my life there. For two years, I uh, lived in a suburb of Cincinnati, Ohio. And then for about a year, I was on active duty in the United States Marine Corps and lived in different places. But Chicago is home. You're a long way from Chicago now, though. So um, what's the story and how did you get to Scotland? Uh, Well, my wife and I and the three youngest of our children moved to Scotland in September of 2003. And that came about because uh, at the age of 35, when I was running a painting and decorating business in Chicago, I decided to finally accept God's call in my life to full-time ministry. A call at first um, felt when I was in high school, but kind of ran away from it. And um, But after running for many years, I decided to surrender to God's will. And I uh, enrolled at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago uh, to major in pastoral studies. And while there, I heard about an overseas study opportunity. And um, so my wife and I and the three youngest of our five children came to Scotland in uh, 2003. We intended to be here for three months. And 16 and a half years later, 
my wife and I and one of our, our three children who came with us are still here. And uh, most recently, I was the pastor of CBC Community Church here on the southwest side of Glasgow, but I previously pastored the Nazarene Church in Perth and also uh, Craig Albert Church in Cumbernauld. And, and for those who don't know you, it is worth saying that, that you are a black man. And so yes. that, that's important to this conversation, I think. Um, and that, that brings me to, I guess, one of the things I want to ask you about. I, I just described you as a black man. Is that, is that appropriate? Absolutely. Is that the right, yeah. that the right language <laughs> to use? Uh, yeah, no, it is. And I know a lot of times people are not sure about that. And when I first came over, the first um, term that was applied to me was Afro-Caribbean. Okay. And I had never heard that before because that's not a term growing up in Chicago we ever use or, or hear uh, used to describe us. Uh, but that would be inaccurate. You know, uh, is African-American or Black? Okay. Uh, tell you a funny story about this, that the difficulty people can have with it is, one of the things I do besides pastoring is also coach one of the 10 National League basketball teams in Scotland. And I can remember being at a game one time and someone was trying to point out one of the players on the opposing team. Now they're all wearing the same uniform, of course, there's about 12 boys. And so they described this player uh, by saying, it's the one with the white trainers and the green stripe. And I'm looking at all of these boys' feet to see which one's got a green stripe and then realize are you talking about the black kid? And they say, yes, well, we wasn't sure if we could say that. He was the <laughs> only black kid on the other team. That would have been much easier. So yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now, one of the things um, about terms is sometimes people might refer to me as colored and then I'll politely uh, correct them on that or Negro, because although those uh, aren't necessarily uh, racist terms or derogatory terms, they're outdated. Yeah. And those were terms that white people gave us. They, they, they decided to call us Negro. They decided to call us colored. And so black and African-American is our way of empowering ourselves to describe ourselves with terms that we want to use. Uh, that's really, really helpful. Thank you. Um, now, this conversation comes about because our current cultural moment is such that, uh, that this is a major topic. And it's come about because uh, in uh, the United States, uh, George Floyd was uh, killed by the police department. And actually, not just because he was killed by the police department, but because it was caught on camera. Uh, and it has therefore shocked and uh, astounded many people around the world and provoked a significant anger and unrest at the injustice of it. Uh, and obviously given rise to uh, the uh, an upsurge in the Black Lives Matter movement and in protests around the United States. Um, I mean, I guess I should give you an opportunity. Is there anything you want to say about the U.S. focus part? I realize you are you are American and, you know, that there may be something there you want to do as much as I'm keen that we spend most of our time looking at Scotland. But is there anything you want to say about well, I can just maybe help to frame this, um, everything that's happening in um, America in a certain context for those listening here in, in Scotland. Um, America, as we all know, has a very tragic um, history of racial discrimination and oppression. You know, uh, black people in America were enslaved for about 250 years, and then it was 100 years of legalized uh, apartheid or segregation. Uh, codified, codified under uh, Jim Crow laws that banned what black people from eating in restaurants and using the same facilities, parks, etc., schools. 
And that tragic legacy of racial inequalities exists today. Um, there are some prominent black voices that are saying this isn't true, but for the overwhelming majority of African-Americans, uh, this is a, a, a real uh, issue for us. And so that's why George Floyd's death, or I would call murder, has resonated so much within the black community and thankfully has spread wider than that. Um, it's not just about George Floyd. It really isn't. He's just a symbol of something that has been going on for a very long time. And then even in recent years, in the past five years or so, we've seen too many incidents of this where unarmed black individuals are, end up being killed at the hands of the police. And so the outpouring of uh, emotion and protest, um, people may wonder why is it, as horrific as it was, if it was just about that one incident, this wouldn't be happening. It's about something much deeper than this. I think the other thing that goes along with beginning to understand something in the United States situation, as we've been exposed to it uh, through media, is that we have a tendency, I think, to end up saying something along the lines of, well, it's really terrible over there. And, you know, the, the Americans should really be doing better about these issues, whether that's the, the police or the systemic issues that you talked about, um, which kind of lets ourselves off the hook a little bit. And um, because by saying that's terrible over there, we're kind of saying something like it's not so bad here or it's not a problem here at all, which would be something I've heard in the last couple of weeks. Do you think we have a race problem in Scotland? I mean, let's just be as blunt as that. Well, let me say uh, that my perspective is a little bit unique. And that is uh, most of the uh, people of color that I know here are either African or Asian. Um, it, I could probably count on one hand in 16 and a half years, the number of black people from America that I have met here who lived here. Uh, most of the ones I've met have been just visiting, but who lived here. And uh, I would explain it this way. I do think that there is a race problem, but how significant it is depends on your perspective. Remember the story in Ezra uh, when the temple was rebuilt, how the young people cheered and the old people wept because they had remembered the original temple and uh, had a different perspective. I have met, I would say nearly every African person I have met have told me stories about how they've been treated badly because of their skin color and the discrimination that they have and abuse that they have been uh, subjected to. My perspective has been that in the 16 and a half years I've been in Scotland, I've been treated very well. And I think that's because coming from America where racism is a real problem and I had lived among a majority white culture for all of my life. So when I come to Scotland, I'm feeling like the Scottish people are so much better than the white Americans that I grew up around and that racism is just not a big issue here. But if you've grown up in a predominantly black culture and now this is your first involvement with white people, you have a very different perspective. I hope that's making sense to you. Yeah. But I, compared to what I experienced in America, wow, this is great. <laughs> but if you come from a place where you've never engaged with white people very much and come here and experience it, 
then it can have, uh, you see it from a different light. Plus, I also think I've benefited. It's not fair. I'm not happy about it, but I have benefited from the fact that I'm, a, I'm an American. And when, uh, what describes the, my uh, normal experience is every time someone meets me, they ask me where I'm from all the time. I mean, uh, ne nearly every day. And then when I say I'm from Chicago, uh, the most common response to that is, Chicago, then what are you doing here? You know, and it's like, why would you choose to move here, uh, leave Chicago and move here? So it's, it's been different for me. But that's not to say that I haven't experienced some things that weren't right. I was thinking about recently I was in a shop and um, I was in the queue observing uh, these two ladies at the till and the lady working, I mean, um, waiting on them was laughing with them and joking and very happy. So I just assumed they must know each other. They left and it was my turn to move forward because of social distance and I was quite a ways back. And she never smiled at me. She never said, come forward or anything. She just looked at me long enough so that I knew, okay, it was time for me to step forward. So I did. And then when I asked her a question, I was looking for some masks, face masks. I said, do you guys carry face masks? And she was like, no, just kind of very abruptly, and not, matter of fact, no. And I said, okay, thanks, and then left. And as I walked away, I heard her say to the person who had been in the queue behind me, oh, hey, good to see you again. And I almost stopped and went back and pointed out to her how she had been so much more jovial and welcoming with the person before me and after me. Um, but that's the extent <laughs> of, of any kind of racial issues that I've had in 16 and a half years here. Yeah. But nearly every African I've met uh, have, has had a different story. Right. And I think it's important that we tell that because that would be the stories I've heard in the past couple of weeks um, would predominantly be from uh, those uh, from the African community and, and they, they would all have talked about things but interestingly a lot of them about those kind of micro things like you just mm -hmm. talked about I, sorry i call that a micro thing but yeah, yeah. something so mm -hmm. small kind that, of micro that could yeah. Miss it. yeah yeah that um but they mount up right <laughs> uh little things and um and and maybe points at subconscious biases that mm -hmm. that many of us white folks might have um, mm -hmm. and, and might need to think about so yeah but the larger point I was trying to make in that is that that's not the kind of racism I was accustomed to experiencing in America it was much more direct and open and uh, so this feels like <laughs> a lot better yeah yeah okay I guess the question is and 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 I know that likely some people listening to this assuming they've got this far into the podcast are are, are going to say something like listen why why are we talking about this you know it, it, it we, we should just be preaching the gospel this isn't our concern i would yeah i would disagree with that um in fact racial reconciliation is at the very heart of the gospel message and over god's intention for the kingdom of god I think that's one of the major themes in the book of Ephesians, how that God had was placing, bringing everything together in earth, under earth, in heaven, uh, under Jesus Christ. And he was breaking down the walls that divide us. Now, in first century Jewish thought, that was Jews and Gentiles. Those only two categories you had. Uh, but the subcategories within those larger categories, God wants to break down as well. And the church is to be the lead in that. And so 
issues surrounding racial discrimination and prejudice and inequalities are not um, something that is outside the purview of, of the church, but directly related to our mission to bring everybody together, to bring true humanity together in, in unity and equality with one another. I think Jesus was trying to teach this as well in Luke 10, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that that's not a parable about just helping somebody or caring about people, you know, or being generous. It, it's really not. If you read that parable and you don't understand that at the, the very crux of it was to understand who is my neighbor and that my neighbor isn't the person who looks like me, talks like me of the same religion or, you know, same race, but it's specifically that person who is different from me, but is in need. And so um, there'll be many uh, Scottish people, white Scottish people who will live in communities where there are very few people of color or maybe none, go to churches where there are very few people of color, perhaps none. And it'd be easy to think that this has nothing to do with them. But if, they, if there is uh, injustice anywhere, they should care about it and do whatever they can to eradicate it. Dr. Martin Luther King was famous for quoting that uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so we just can't pass by on the other side of the road. We've got to stop and help the person who uh, is in need, and especially uh, those who are not like us. The other reason this is such an important issue for the church to be engaged in is, and you touched on it earlier, we live in such a polarized society that often it's the angriest voices that dominate any conversation. And what we're seeing right now in the world is um, the world community grappling often unsuccessfully with how do we deal with these inequalities and these racial divisions. How is it to be that the church of Jesus Christ will stand on the sideline and do nothing or say nothing about it and let others get on with it? Um, to me, it's kind of like being in a church of 100 people and a fire breaks out and the six members of the congregation who are firefighters just sit there and watch other people try to put it out. You know, you would expect those who are best positioned and qualified to deal with these issues to get involved. And when the church doesn't get involved, that's exactly what we're doing. We're sitting back, letting the world get on. We're trying to figure out how to bring unity together instead of us taking the lead in it, because that's exactly what we're called and equipped to do. If I can rewind just a wee second, mm -hmm. you talked about uh, that, that beautiful picture of everyone being brought together. And mm -hmm. um, there's a sense in which one of the risks of how at least I often think about that uh, and how I've heard others talk about that is that that we essentially are bringing everyone together and we become colorblind, right? We, 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 we don't see the color mm -hmm. of one another's skin uh, mm -hmm. or the, the classic line um, that, that I think particularly white people might speak is something like, well, I, I, I don't see you as black mm -hmm. or Asian or w whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I just see you as Darnell or mm -hmm. whoever I'm speaking to. That's problematic, right? And it's not it Christian. Mm -hmm. could, could you help us with that a little? Because I think for many white people, that will be a challenge because I think we've trained ourselves to think, I see beyond your color or I, or something like that. I, I'm not quite yeah. sure what we've done, but we certainly think that way often. And I think often the motives are pure but the language in a way has been expressed as unhelpful. 
uh, and some of that might come from a misunderstanding of scripture. And, and I was thinking about Galatians 3 uh, that talks about in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you all one in Christ Jesus. And we shouldn't read that to mean that, you know, there are no, uh, you know, the genders are gone, you know, yeah. and races are gone within the body of Christ. What it means is that these things don't divide us. You know, these things don't make one person more important than the other person. And so we don't need to um, try to see everybody as kind of genderless and raceless. Uh, but what we need to see is the diversity that God has placed on this earth and within the body of Christ is to be celebrated, not just tolerated. Mm. And um, I talked about how that term of saying um, a phrase, I don't see you as black. I don't think of you like that way is really unhelpful and also is, is um, offensive to, I think probably most black people definitely is to me. Now I never get upset about it because I know often what they mean by that. But when somebody says that to me, what they're saying or what I'm hearing is that my blackness is an obstacle or a deficiency that they have removed from me to make me more acceptable to them. They don't want to see that. Instead, what I want of my friends and people who know me to do is to see me as black, to see me as different, and to celebrate that difference, to, to realize that there's something unique about you and different about you, because that's how I feel about white people. I don't see white people as black, you know, but one of the reasons uh, I, I love being in a multicultural and racial environment is because I like hearing the different stories and the different perspectives and the different cultures that people bring uh, to a community. And incredibly challenging. Um, I, I, I mean, that means I have to change the way I live uh, or, or at least how I speak um, uh, with that. So uh, thank you uh, for that. Um, we're going to move on uh, just now and we're going to chat a little bit about really why we should care as Christians. We've touched a little on this already, but Mm -hmm. um i guess i guess the question rather than just the the, the really blunt sh should we not just preach the gospel mm -hmm. can we be a bit more nuanced and, and why is it that this is a christian issue what does the bible have to say to us about uh racial reconciliation and uh and fighting against racial injustice well, first of all, we'll take issue with the idea that when you're talking about racial issues, you're not preaching the gospel. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I think that is part of the Thank good you. news uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's because the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't only address uh, sin in the hearts of men that manifests itself in terms of sexual immorality or lying or cheating or things like that. It also addresses the sin in the human hearts of discrimination and racism and sexism and classism. And those are sins that need to be addressed just as much. And the good news of the gospel is that um, through repentance and salvation and a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, an individual's heart can be transformed. So that way they're able to love their brother as themselves. You know, that they're not just have this, uh, we're not just have this idea that I love God and I don't care about my brother, especially brothers and sisters who look different than me, but I love God and I care about all people, uh, even those who look different from me. So it is very much part of um, part of uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then the other thing is, 
is it's part of God's creative plan. You know, God created humanity to live in relationship with him and with one another. And um, because of sin, our relationship with God was uh, cut off, but it also affected our relationship with one another. And so the ideal of community is at the heart of God's creative purposes. But community is also at the heart of God's redemptive purpose. The reason Jesus Christ came to earth and died on the cross for us is so that our relationship with God would be restored, but not just that, but so that our relationship with one another would be restored as well. And it's only as the church lives um, as brothers and sisters, regardless of race and class and all these other things, um, do we really reflect the redeemed um, you know, community that Jesus Christ died for? So if we are preaching and singing and praying, but aren't working to restore the broken relationships in society and among humanity, particularly as it relates to race, then we are not fulfilling God's purpose for the church. We were to unite humanity as God originally intended. So Darnell, we've been talking about the importance of um, racial reconciliation, not only as uh, kind of ancillary to the gospel, but actually as right at the very heart of it. Um, but over the last couple of weeks, I've, I and I'm sure many of our listeners, and I'm sure yourself, have heard some objections to this movement. Um, and I wonder if we could just maybe talk about some of those just now, just to kind of ground this in people's real experience of the moment. I mean, I guess the first one is that racism is really no different to anti-English sentiment or sectarianism, both of which we know are a problem in Scotland. But we don't see protests and marches about those issues. So why is this issue of racism different? Yeah, and I would agree that anti-English sentiment and sectarianism is bad as well, and it needs to be addressed and eradicated. But in this moment, events have transpired to focus on racial inequalities, particularly in America, police brutality, these types of things. And we need to focus on that uh, in this moment. And hopefully, if some event happened, and, and hopefully it wouldn't happen, but if it did, then we would see the world rally behind those other issues as well. Um, but the issue of racial injustice and inequality is something that goes back centuries. And uh, particularly in, in more recent times, we have seen uh, some of the most horrific forms of slavery in America, where black people weren't just subjected to involuntary servitude, but they were dehumanized and treated as animals or property. Uh, and we've seen that tragic uh, legacy uh, play out uh, in the decades since the end of slavery. And so now that the spotlight is focused on that, I, I just don't think um, it's helpful for people to say, well, let's not look at that, let's look at some other issue. This is the one that the world is mobilized behind solving. But the other thing is, during the uh, civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s in America, although it was primarily focused on liberation of rights for Black Americans, that movement had a ripple-on effect across the globe. And we saw a lot of African nations come into independence in other parts of the world, where the same thing can happen here. As we focus to eliminate racial prejudice and racism, it will have a knock-on effect. So that sectarianism and other forms of, of prejudice uh, will also be uh, eradicated as well. 
Yeah, it, it's almost like just because one sin doesn't cancel out another. <laughs> you know, it's it's Absolutely. not a one-upmanship thing. Um, the other sort of thing that I've I've heard is that people say, you know, there might be a few bad apples, but you know, as a whole nation, we're not we're not really racist, and you know, systemic racism is it's a bit of a myth, really. It doesn't really exist. I mean, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I have uh, some sympathy for that view because. In some ways, I shared that view after being here just for a year or two or three. Whenever I would go back to Chicago and talk to my family and friends and they would ask me, what is it like living in Scotland? The thing I highlighted often the most was that white Scots are not like many white Americans. You know, they, they're, they're just different. They don't treat me the same way. I don't have the same experience. And I can't tell you how often People are very friendly towards me, all, all of these things. So I can understand that people may feel like that. But what we can't do is just view this subject in the light of our own personal experience. When I hear other people of color saying that they are discriminated against directly and they have been abused, I've got to care about that, even if I haven't experienced it myself. And so that's what I would say to a white person in Scotland. Don't judge that by your own experience. Before you say that uh, there are just a few bad apples, but Scotland isn't racist, make sure that you have engaged with Black people you know and that they would confirm that experience. And if they're not saying that, then that should concern you. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, to the, the bigger movement of Black Lives Matters, um, isn't that quite uninclusive to be just purely focused on Black people? Um, no, it's not. And part of um, what people have to understand is what does that phrase mean? You know, um, slogans can sometimes be helpful or unhelpful, and you have to make sure that you don't focus more on uh, the, the slogan than what it is the slogan is trying to express. And the slogan, Black Lives Matter, is meant to express that Black Lives Matter too, or Black Lives Matter also. Unfortunately, some people hear it as only Black Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter more. And that's not at all what it's meant to convey. And so why are people saying that Black Lives Matter too, or Black Lives Matter also? It's because what we have seen is disproportionate amount of unarmed Black individuals being killed by the police. And um, there is a cry to say, this is wrong and let's focus our attention on this and let's do something about it. And what they're saying to the police, this is where it originated is that um, the same way you treat white suspects or white people that you encounter, do the same with black people too, because their lives matter as well. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, we've probably all seen the images of people marching with banners and some of them are, are uh, creative and some of them are not so creative but i did see one uh last week uh, that said um and i i, I wonder if this person carrying it was a christian because it feels uh -huh. profoundly significant they said that matter is the minimum black lives are worthy black lives are beloved black lives are needed and i really appreciated that because it, it seemed to move beyond just being stuck with some sense of uh just you you matter and I, I thought that was that was profound matter is the minimum absolutely and that's what i was uh, trying to express earlier i talked about how that we shouldn't just tolerate diversity 
within our community and our schools and our churches, we should celebrate it. You know, we don't need a culture where everybody is exactly the same. We need a culture where there are different voices, there are different cultural expressions, music and fashion and, and literature, all of these things, but we appreciate that about one another. And I mean, we're just on the back of Pentecost Sunday too, right? So that shouldn't be good. That shouldn't be kind of surprising news to us. No, mm -mm. it was birthed there. <laughs> let's uh, let's turn uh, to a, cu a couple of maybe more specific issues um, mm -hmm. that are from a Christian perspective. Um, we've heard a lot of uh, language being used, and we, we talked earlier about the importance of language, but um, the language that's at least new to me uh, is, is a sentence that goes something like this. It's not, it's not enough now not just to not be racist. We have to be anti-racist. And, and I wonder, could you maybe talk to that a little bit? Because that, that's a new idea to me um, and, and kind of sounds right, but I just wonder if you could help yeah. us unpack that a little. Yeah, glad to. Uh, that's an important point. Um, and it is really important that we deal with these phrases and, and language because how can we understand each other if we're not using the same terms or have the same understanding of the terms that we're using? And so often I, over my life, I've heard people say, I'm not racist. And it created this impression that there were two categories of people. There were the racist, there were the not racist. But there's a third category, and that is the anti-racist. And what we need is for white people to move from the not racist and some black people as well from the not racist to the anti-racist and the difference is is to be not racist is to imply at least this is what is heard by black people when white people say they're not racist is that i'm not actively participating in racist behavior but they're not saying i'm actively working to end discrimination and to end uh, mistreatment of black people. So it's like I'm neutral. And what, what people need to be is not neutral, but anti-racist where you get involved. Again, to quote Dr. King, he often talked about how it wasn't, you know, the anger and the, the bricks being thrown and the actions of the bad people that worried him the most. It was the passiveness of the good people. And uh, I think you see this uh, in society on a lot of different levels. We need to not just be not racist in that we don't actively participate in racism. We need to be actively anti-racist, doing whatever we can to end discrimination in racism. I wonder how we progress that in terms of uh, engaging in the public square. What, what does it mean um, for those of us, particularly those of us who are white, to engage this subject in the public square, um, how do we deal with that? How, how do we engage well? Well, I think there are a number of things, and it begins with having a conversation, like the one I'm appreciating that we're able to have today. We've got to talk about it. And uh, for many people, particularly white people, there's a real reticence to do that because people are fearful that they might be misunderstood, or feel like they, they are not qualified to speak on race um, or afraid um, that they might get some backlash from it. You know, some people will be angry about it because some people um, think that when you talk about race, you're stirring up something that uh, wouldn't otherwise happen, but that's not true. Um, it, it's, it's, there's a difference between silence and peace. And often what people really want is not peace, they just want silence. Let's just pretend it's not there. But the events recently, 
you know, precipitated by George Floyd's death, help once again for us to see that this is an issue that's just always simmering just beneath the surface. And all it takes is just something to bring it up. So we need to, we need to deal with this. So that's the first thing, have this conversation. Uh, I, I would say that a, a local pastor, first of all, talk to people of color. And then I wanna encourage black people like myself to be willing to listen and engage. Not all black people are. I've had some of them say, I'm tired of talking to white people about race. Or why don't they go read a book or educate themselves? Or why are they always looking for us to answers? But we can't, we can't have that attitude. We've gotta be willing to dialogue and engage and try to understand each other. Not just the white man understanding the black man's perspective, but the black man understanding the white man's perspective. perspective. Because uh, as black people, we can't take the mindset that black, white people have nothing to say about race, that they, their voices shouldn't be heard. Every voice needs to be heard in a relationship or you get nothing accomplished. And there are some real fears and concerns among white people. For instance, some white people are afraid that when you talk about lifting up the black man, you're talking about pulling down the white man, that whatever gains black people get will come at the expense of white people. And that needn't be the case. That's not what black people are asking for and that's not necessary, but people need to be um, have their minds set at ease that that's not what it means. Uh, so we need to make sure that we have these dialogue and, and communicate effectively with one another. So the first thing that can be done is just just talking, listening, understanding the stories of one another. And I, and actually, I, I suspect that those are best done not in an online forum, like not on Facebook yeah. or Twitter. <laughs> Or whatever they're, they're they're not given to nuance and relationship uh they're given to uh anger and uh quick responses um so you start to discuss the discussion with people that either you know or people you have some connection with you know so that there is some some base of understanding but then it's got to go beyond just the discussion and there's some real concrete things uh perhaps before the podcast is over that we can talk about that churches can begin to do uh, to kind of bridge the racial divide. Uh, yeah, so there'll be uh, a, a number of uh, ways that we can look at uh, practically that we can do things as churches, and we'll, we'll come to that in just a moment if that's all right. I think mm -hmm. um, I, I'm interested in this, uh, in how we engage this in the public square. And, you know, what, my instinct is uh, um, is to whatever platform I have, uh, not necessarily so much the, the podcast I'm thinking about, but in church uh, and elsewhere, that I would now make an active effort to make sure that black voices or uh, people of color have a voice in those spaces. And th this is where you get stuck in your own head a little bit, because then I'm worried, oh no, wait a minute, is that tokenism? Am I just trying to to make sure that by doing that we've we've ticked a box somewhere, and I, I hope my heart's not there. But but how, how you know, I, 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 as a black man, is that it, would you be conscious of that tokenism uh, risk in, in this? And how do we avoid that in, in the way that we move forward? I do think it's a risk, but I would advise black people listening not to um, disengage for fear of that. You know, so, you know, for instance, myself, there have been people who've reached out to me and uh, as we're doing today and asked my opinion about things. And I'm happy with that because uh, that's why God has 
given me the life experience he has and put me in the position he has so that I can share um, my, my perspective on it. Um, the way you avoid tokenism though from the white perspective where you make sure you're not just doing that is make sure you're willing to listen to and engage and give a platform for all types of black voices. It only becomes tokenism when white people choose the spokesperson for the black community that they are most comfortable with. And they put promote that voice and that person and say, here, see, this is how the black community feels. But then voices that might be um, in disagreement with their own perspective ideals or say things that wouldn't sit so nicely with them, then those they exclude. And then it becomes uh, tokenism. As long as the platform allows for different expressions of the black community's uh, perspective on racial issues, uh, then that's fine. That's really helpful. <laughs> really helpful. Thank you. Um, last little question on this bit. Uh, how should we interact online? What should be our posture, particularly as white people? So we see lots of stuff coming out. You know, everybody and their uncle's posting something on Facebook. There's a link to a new video every day. This one's gone viral. That one's, here's a Twitter link to something I saw. Um, how, how, how do we engage well in, in that space? Because I think you're modeling something for us that is, is brilliant. I, 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 mean, I must say thank you for that. Um, so how, how do we do that well? Wow, well, Glenn, that's, that's a tough question. Um, I think it begins with, um, there's two things. There is what we can do, you know, how, how we'll express ourselves online, but then also how we'll respond to what other people do. And I want to strike a balance between trying to censor people and trying to say, unless you do it and express yourself this particular way, then you're inappropriate and your voice needs to be snuffed out. We, you know, you should be silenced because that's not helpful. And I don't think that's what social media should be about. It shouldn't be a place where, on, where only the voices and the people who speak exactly how we would want them to are able to be heard. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, that, that can't be the case where that uh, everybody's got to take the same perspective as me and express yeah. themselves the same way as me or they're terrible. So some of this is going to be letting people have the freedom to say whatever they want. And then now it becomes incumbent upon me to make sure I respond to it appropriate and helpful. And for me, some of the things I try to practice is I just don't respond to everything. Yeah. I try to never get involved in a back and forth with somebody who I don't know. Okay. So if a friend of mine puts up a very positive, you know, pro black or pro black lives post, and then someone says something very critical of it or very negative, or maybe even, uh, you know, sort of racist, I don't respond to that individual okay. if I don't know them. Yeah. And then sometimes there've been things people have put up that I do know and I've just let it pass because um, I don't want to get into an argument online back and forth with somebody. Now, sometimes what I'll do is I'll private message them and say, I'm not sure if you really realize, you know, how, what your statement means. So for instance, if someone, you know, puts up uh, black lives matter and then somebody else says all lives matter, I might reach out to them individually and to explain to them when you say that, here's what I'm hearing. And, you know, if you care about how black people would respond to that, because because what can happen is they can see that post black lives matter 
and, and agree with it. And when they say all lives matter, that was their way of saying that yes, black lives matter because all lives matter, <laughs> but not understand that black people would see that as a way of them distracting from that message and diminishing that message. So, but, um, you know, my dad used to say all the time to us growing up, uh, people want to know that you care before they care what you know. And if, if someone doesn't already know that I care about them, then it's going to be harder for me to try to change their mind about anything. And so then I just need to let those go. Yeah. But if, if someone were to ask me, how can I engage online? What should I be posting uh, so that it would be helpful and that hurtful? Then I would say, start with having a discussion with black people, you know, mm -hmm. and gain a bit of perspective so that when you start to post things and respond to things, you'll know that what you're putting out there isn't conveying the exact opposite message that you intended. Yeah. Thank you. That and then be patient with one another. We, we really do. It is so hard today, again, in this polarized society, for people to hear someone or read something that they disagree with and not just getting immediately angry and want to strike back. But we, we need to um, be able to give people the benefit of the doubt if it's somebody that we know mm. and to patiently try to show them maybe how the way they've, they've expressed something is just not very helpful. Great. Well, listen, just a few minutes ago, you said you had some ideas for for those of us in uh, church and leading churches about how we can begin to engage this this conversation. So I wonder if you'd be kind enough to share some of those thoughts with us. Sure, I'd be glad to. And I think it begins again with conversation. So uh, pastors, white pastors in predominantly white churches, if you have uh, a handful of black people in the church, I would begin by reaching out to them and asking them, don't just assume that they would want to have that conversation don't force yourself on them say hey you guys are the black people in my church so you don't want you to you know to tell me about this but just you know i'm willing to listen or would like to hear your perspective would you like to share it and hopefully they will so so begin there but then there's some other concrete things particularly once we come out of uh, lockdown and start worshiping uh in person together again that can be done and one is to um not assume if your church isn't very diverse, that that's reflective of your community. Um, I think there are there's a lot more diversity in Scotland now than it was 16 and a half years ago. Glenn, this will be a funny story, but when I first came to Scotland, if I left, I, I came to study at ICC, which was in the city city center. And if I left college and caught the bus home to Crawford on the southwest side of the city and saw a black person on the bus, walking down the street. When I got home, I made mention of that to my family. I saw a black person today <laughs> on the bus or walking down the street. I would never do that now because there are so many more people of color. Uh, and I don't think that's just true in Glasgow. Maybe it's most true in the bigger cities, but there may be communities where a church is 100% white and the community is only 90% white. And so I would begin by reflecting critically on why, first of all, is our church reflective of the demographics of the community in terms of ethnicity? And if we are less diverse than our community, why is that? You know, why is it that we live in a community that's 90% white, but our church is 100% white? And don't just assume that there are no black Christians in the community. Then you've got to um, make the effort to make people of color who come to church 
really feel welcome. And many Africans have expressed to me that it's a lukewarm welcome. There's a sense in which you're welcome to come. We would never stop you at the door or, or mistreat you in any way, but you're not celebrated. It isn't as if it really is important to us that you guys are part of this, this community. It's more of a sense of, you wanna come, fine, but if you don't, we're not gonna miss you. That, that is conveyed uh, indirectly, kind of subconsciously. So I, I'm uh, going to ask a difficult question okay. here uh, mm -hmm. because I think this is the kind of conversation we're trying to have. Um, I, I, I know that I can, or I can imagine some of my white pastor friends sit and say, we, we would love the black community nearby us to come, but they all go to African churches. Absolutely. What, what, how, what, do, we, what do we do with that? I mean, and that's not a criticism of, of, of black majority churches at all. It, it's, it's just trying as a white person to understand that and wonder if, if, if you can help in yeah. any way. No, that's a very good uh, question, Glenn. Plus, I would go further than, than that and say that I've pastored three churches in Scotland. And in the first church, my family was the only black family in the church. The, uh, the, the next church, there was, um, I don't know, maybe 15 to 20 black people, but mainly college students who had come over from primarily Kenya to study up in Perth. And it was there when I first started engaging with um, black people in terms of church here. And I would have them over to the house, to the manse, and meet with them in their homes and try to get them to feel and become fully integrated into the life of the church. And it just never worked. Um, a few of them did but you could have 20 people in the church and maybe two or three of them were members of the church or served in leadership in any way. And then when I came down here to Glasgow, it was the same thing where when we first arrived, there was one black family in the church, but it grew to about maybe 20 people who attended the church, uh, at least semi-regularly black people. And it was still the same struggle for me. I never felt like the majority of them was fully integrated into the life of the church. I mean, came to the Bible studies and the prayer meetings and served in some way and were uh, official members so they could be at the church AGM, all of these things. They just came on a Sunday morning, you know, and, and that was it. So uh, there are some real barriers there, but the way that it, it begins to change is for the black community to feel like they're really wanted. And it's got to go beyond just saying that you're welcome at the door, but getting to know them, going to their home, uh, accepting invitations, you know, to go to their home, which is even more important. It's more important for white Christians to go visit Africans and people of color in their home than to invite you, invite them to your own home. Okay. Because most of us as people of color, we're used to living in a white culture and you know kind of having to adapt to the way things are done in church in work in school just out in a society in general but when you get a chance to go into the home of a black couple and have them serve you a meal for them to offer the hospitality it is you putting yourself in their world mm. you know and that just once again inviting them into your world in the way things and eating their food and yeah. and all of that so it's it's those are the the next step things that, that need to be done. Uh, and then, you know, try to, you can't just put people in positions because they're black or white or Hispanic or anything, but there needs to be a real uh, openness as the spirit leads and, and sends these people to the church to allow them to contribute something. Yeah. 
we can't see white churches can't see people of color as just the audience or just the mission field, you know, but that there are black uh, people in Scotland who are part of the body of Christ who have something profound and significant to offer. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, the other thing I would mention is we've got to tear down this kind of unspoken assumption or rule within many churches, our house, our rules, where black people are welcome to come, but we're not going to change at all. We're not going to do anything different to accommodate you, you know, and it may be things like having the scripture read in another language, you know, some, some portion of the service that is specifically to, to meet their culture, maybe singing an African song or allowing there to be some praise dancers at times or having a scripture read in another language. But as long as it continues to be, you can come but there's nothing about this experience that's going to remind you of, you know, the black church experience or the African mm. church experience is going to be harder to really uh, get people of color to feel like that's their church home. They're going to always feel like guests in somebody else's house. Yeah. There, there, there's something there too about for, for those of us who are white about being wish, willing to take the position of vulnerability yeah um, exactly. so you talked about it in the context of hospitality, but I think in what you were saying about how we might uh, amend our church cultures, that's again about us taking the position of of vulnerability and are we willing to do that? It's obviously a, a profoundly Christian thing to mm-hmm. do um, but it does lead to embarrassing situations i'm uh, just as you were talking, I was reminded of being uh, invited to uh, a, a fellow elder in a, a church that I, I was in uh, many years ago, invited to his home, uh, and he and his wife were Nigerian, and uh, they, she was cooking, and uh, she held up this, uh, uh, well, uh, I said, that's a huge banana, and, mm-hmm. and she just started laughing and laughing and laughing, and I was like, well, what's the problem? I'm like, it looks like a massive banana, and she's like, Glenn, that's plantain, yeah. and uh, mm-hmm. we're going to teach you something today. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, like that's a silly little thing, but it, it is that, you know, it's vulnerable because you're going to be in that place where you make the mistakes, the cultural mm-hmm. errors, and have to trust that people will be forgiving of you yeah, in that moment. Absolutely. So, uh, But that, that that's a very important uh, situation to put yourselves in. I love the way you've expressed that, that being willing to be vulnerable because uh, too often the the white church is only experienced with people of color is in a position of power and strength and even benevolence, which is great, you know, but um, it, it's important that people are willing to open up to people of color, show their own vulnerability, go in their spaces, you know, do the things that they like sometimes too and not just... Uh, well, we're we're here, and we're the power structure. We're you willing for you to come and uh, take from us in terms of our teaching and our praise and stuff? But uh, there needs to be this reciprocal attitude of, you know, God has brought you to our fellowship. You carry within you something unique, something that God wants you to share with us, and we want we want that. Don't take that away because you will rob us of God's blessing. What is it? that you can impart to us that we need to hear and experience. That's when we'll really break down the racial divide. Uh, but let, also let me just bring a balance to what I've been saying, because it's not just all on um, the white church and the responsibility to be open. Uh, we also have to realize that 
there, there's nothing wrong with predominantly white churches and black churches. You know, uh, wouldn't want anybody to feel, oh, my church is, is really uh, out of God's will because we're all white or all black. Uh, sometimes that can't be helped geographically because of the demographics in that community. But what needs to happen is we need to do a better job. And, and I'm going to make a confession here that's embarrassing for me to say, but I need to be full disclosure tell you this. There are too many of us, including myself, who have never engaged with the black church here in Scotland. Again, I've been here for 16 and a half years. I've pastored three churches. I've preached at dozens of churches. I've preached in every nation in the United Kingdom. And I have never once attended a service of a predominantly black church in the UK ever. Okay. And only recently have I even met pastor, black pastor, you know, more black pastors. I knew a few from my days in the Nazarene church. And I want to change that. So as soon as this lockdown ends, I'm going to be making it a point to reach out to the black church community in Scotland and get to know more of the black pastors. And that's what churches need to do. So if you got a white church in one in the community and a black church, that's fine, but they should be finding opportunities to do things together more often and to get to know each other and not be strangers to one another. <laughs> I took us down a bit of a, an alleyway there. Did you get to all the points you wanted to make about practical ways that we can engage this topic? Yeah, I think so. Church? It was, yeah, we again, just yeah, talking to one another, particularly, particularly if you are a pastor, a white pastor in a church to any people of color, evaluating whether or not your church reflects the demographics of the community or are you less diverse than the community you come from? Because the assumption, I think, would be that most churches would feel like they, they, they are as diverse as the community. It may not be true. And then really reaching out to people in the community. Mm. But it, the welcoming part is such a, such, such a big thing. It can't just be a nice big smile and a handshake at the front door. You know, it's got to go much deeper than that. Yeah. If someone's listening to this and thinking, okay, Darnell's on to something, there is definitely something here. I, I need to learn more. I need to grow in this. Do you have any resources that you would point people to as being particularly helpful? Um, well, the first resource, and I've tried to touch on this just uh, a few times throughout this talk, is the Bible. I just think <laughs> if we if we read the Bible the way that it's meant to be read, what we come to discover is that the whole heart of God's creative purpose and his redemptive purpose was community. And part of the brokenness of community is racial discrimination and prejudice. And as the Church of Jesus Christ, we are called to restore this broken community. So um, talking about racial reconciliation should be at the heart of every church, whether it's white, black, Hispanic, Asian, part of their mission, heart of their message. And if pastors aren't ever preaching on this or teaching on this, then they're falling short of the whole counsel of God. Uh, because it's not just about, you know, again, whether we lie or cheat or steal or fornicate or commit adultery. It's about how we treat our fellow man. And Jesus said that if our treatment of other people, and he talked about your enemies, but I would put into that category, so I think what he's talked about people who aren't like you and not in your group, if it doesn't exceed that, of the scribes and Pharisees, then we won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And as it relates to racial issues, if as Christians, how we treat people and see people of different, different backgrounds is no different than how non-Christians do, then we're not doing enough. You know, yeah. our churches should reflect the redeemed community that Jesus died for. 
where there is no racism and sexism and classism because we're all one in Jesus Christ. And that where that's just something nice that we say, but we live in it. Yeah. And, and it's not easy. Yeah. Let me tell you, as a black man pastoring three white churches, it is not easy. Yeah. It would be so much easier for me if I had pastored an all black church. But the reason I choose to pastor white churches and the reason I feel God has called me here is because this is important. You know, this is important and it's worth the hard work of getting to understand each other and uh, blending different cultures. And as you try to do that, Glenn, I cannot overstate this at all. It will be difficult, but it's worth it. Yeah. Darnell, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been fabulous to have this conversation with you. And, and I hope this is a beginning of the conversation rather than the end of the conversation. Um, it, it strikes me that uh, many of us have a lot to learn in this area. And just as you've said, that the, the only way for us to grow here is really in dialogue uh, with, with others. So thank you. Is there anything you'd like to add that you haven't had the chance to say today? Uh, no, I think that's about it. I really appreciate the opportunity to share. And um, I, I will just add one thing. It, it's interesting how all of this has come about because for uh, all the years I've lived in Scotland, there's been so many times when I have felt, uh, God, why do you have me here? Because things relating to race and rec race, uh, racial reconciliation are very dear to me, but it just seemed like there was no platform to talk about these things yeah. here. It wasn't on anybody's mind, yeah. you know? And, and now suddenly God has opened up an opportunity for dialogue with a number of people, and I've really appreciated that. And I hope it will move beyond just a conversation and some of the things I've talked about in others, because I don't have all the ideas, but that we would seriously work on this. One of the things I would love to see in the Baptist Union is for us to think about ways in which we can set a goal with God's help and begin to work towards seeing greater diversity within the Baptist Union over the next five years. Because I have so often been at pastor's conferences and seminars and a general assembly, and I can count how many other black people are in the room and wonder why am I in a denomination where that's 99% white. Yeah, it's, it's, it, we're, it's a middle-class white guys, right? That's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's me and all the guys like me that are in there. So Yeah, uh, sorry. Uh, but maybe that can change. Maybe yeah. we can begin together to pray and work to, to see that change because I think that's what heaven is going to be like. Yeah, It's going to be diverse, and uh, I would love to see that happen. Yeah, that's great. That's but great. thanks again, Glenn. I'm glad to be able to share with you today. Thanks for asking me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. So, um, Darnell, thank you. Uh, thank you for listening. This has been a long podcast, but I think worthwhile uh, taking the time to uh, wrestle with these issues and to hear uh, from Darnell. Um, if you've got any questions, if you'd like to um, ask us any further questions on this, then do get in touch with us, and we would love to set up the opportunity to create some further dialogue with Darnell and with others uh, around this issue uh, of race, of racial reconciliation, and particularly of how we as churches and Baptist churches here in Scotland can engage this conversation, as we said at the very beginning, both pastorally and missionally. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do it through uh, Twitter, you can do it through the Baptist Union website, or you can email me, Glenn, with two N's, at pbc.scot. You can find the link to that in the uh, show notes. Thank you again for taking the time to listen. My name's Glenn Innes. This has been the Midcast. 
We are out. You've been listening to the MIGCAST, a presentation of the Mission Initiative Group of the Baptist Union of Scotland.